Welcome to another edition of the Built for the Storm podcast. Hosted by three-time World Series champion Jeremy Affelt. Affelt brings it. Chopper on the infield. Affelt to the bag himself. Get ready to experience life's winding journey through the minds of proven leaders in the worlds of sports, business, and entertainment. And he strikes out. That's four straight for Affel. Can't do it any better than Jeremy Affel. As they draw up your own personal playbook to overcoming the odds and achieving real success. We just don't give up. We don't quit. You know how we pieced everything together, man. Seeing teams win like this, the way we win. What's the best way to weather a storm? Run into it head on, charging full steam ahead. This is unbelievable, you know, game seven. I mean, this will be a memory for a long time for me. I'm so happy I got to come to the park today. Here's the fearless leader of our pack, Jeremy Affeld. Built for the Storm podcast here at Free Rome Brewing Company in Bernie, Texas. We are going to enjoy another conversation from one of my good friends, ex-teammate, Man, that taught me a lot about the game of baseball from the mental side. Kind of was a part of the team when I was a rookie, and he kind of showed me the ropes. It was a um, phenomenal experience with this man. Played uh, over 10 years in the big leagues, two world championships with the Yankees. Started his big league career in 1989 to 2006. Was with, like, every team in baseball. Uh, yeah, so... But he, he was awesome, and we called him the Grim Reaper. Jason Grimsley is joining me today. This is going to be one of my favorite podcasts because of all the ones we've done, if you want to hear raw, this is going to be as raw as it gets. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this conversation with you. Jason, I think we when we talk about storms and being built for it, I think we're going to get into a lot of different scenarios where you were built for storms, but then you were tested to the point where you didn't think you were built for it, and then you still got through it. So I'm really, really happy to have this conversation. I think you have a story to tell. Uh, you've recently put out a book called Cross Stitched, right? That's correct. And um, it's his his story, and it is raw as it gets. If you want to pick that up, you can pick that up. Uh, Amazon, right? Amazon, yes. Amazon. Uh, and, and here at Free Roam. And here at Free Roam, yep. Yeah, we're, he, he said, I brought you a box. You better sell them. He threatened me. And he, if you see him, I'm kind of scared. So, no, we're, we're going to have a good time. Uh, so, Jason, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hey, I appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, no, it's going to be know great. You I love you, and... You asked me to come here, and you didn't ask me to come here. I showed up. You had an <laughs> absolute uh, incredible experience last night. You've started a, a thing here at Free Rome that um, I'm extremely proud of you and, and grateful for you um, starting a, a men's group where you're you're sharing the word, and you brought an incredible speaker and author, uh, Mr. John Lynch. Yeah, he's great. And uh, just powerful, impactful, eye-opening, and, um, you know, it, it, like you said, this was your dream. This was your vision. And um, I think God's going to be using you in, in ways you can't even imagine now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we had a great night recording in this podcast. We just did our very first men's night and I uh, brought in a good friend of mine, John Lynch. And uh, from John Lynch Speaks, wrote some several books. We've recently had him on the podcast. If you missed it, go back and check it out. We're going to have some good times, but we talked about two roads yesterday. We talked about the road of good intentions and the road to grace at the men's night. It was awesome. But even talking about the road to grace, I think that's a, a big story. Yours going through life and you had to give yourself a lot of grace. I think your bride had to give you a lot of grace. Your kids, a lot of your relationships, friendships had to walk this road with you. Uh, I walked a lot of it. And so I'm really, really proud of your story. But let's get into uh, a little bit. You've had a lot of storms, crazy storms. 
we just talked about this earlier today when we were having conversation around the counter at the house. And but in Kansas City, plane crashes in your backyard. Give me that story. Yep. It was in January. I think it was January twenty first, two thousand five, and um, it was a cold day. It was probably ten degrees. There's a hundred foot ceiling in the clouds. It was sleeting. And in the winter, during off season, every morning, I'd get up and take my boys to school. And I'd come back to the house, and I'd sit on the couch, and Dana had a, had a trainer. Her name was Miranda. And they would go down in the basement and work out while I had a cup of coffee, and Rain would watch her telephone program. I think it was Teletubbies at the time. You know, I still got that stuck in my head. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> but um, so this particular morning, I, I was about 8.15. Boys start school at 8.30. So I'm, I, t- I took them to school. And as, as I'm pulling up their school, I'm, I'm dropping them off. And um, I was driving a Chevrolet Suburban, and I noticed that driver's side front was making a, a, just a horrible scraping noise, metal on metal. And a truck never made that sound before. And so I immediately called my, my buddy, the Chevrolet lady dealership, right when I dropped the boys off. And it's about 10 minutes further away from the house. And um, he said, yeah, bring it on by. We'll look at it real quick. Well, I'm pulling up into the Chevrolet place, and... My wife calls me on the phone. She's in a calm voice. She says, Jason, a plane hit the house. Rain and I are fine. You need to get home. So I, I got in the truck, and I had about a 25-minute drive back to the house, and I broke every law on the man. <laughs> and uh, pulled into the neighborhood. They had the road blocked. I drove around the road block. Get close to my house. They had that road blocked off. I drove around. I drove up in my front yard. Got out of my truck. Police officer tried to stop me, and... Me being me, I said, they're going to shoot me. It's my house. (laughs) I'm finding my wife and my kid. So I go in the front door, which I never do, because on the side of the house, I had a 1985 Nissan pickup truck. That was my first truck I ever bought. And it was cut in half and on fire. And I ran through the front of the house, hollering for my wife and my daughter, get to the back of the house, keeping room in in the kitchen area where, where Rain and I sat, and I'd have coffee, and she'd watch her program while Dana was working out. And the glass was gone. Some of the walls were gone. The kitchen sliding glass door was gone. Part of the kitchen was gone. I ran through the back patio door and saw some things that I, I wish I could unsee. You know, there was it was just a terrible scene. And um, police officer finally called up, caught up with me, and told me Dana and and, and Rain were fine, but uh, there were five people on that plane that lost their lives. You know, mm-hmm. It was a horrible thing. But um, that being said, if my, if the, if my truck which made that noise and it never made that noise again, by the way. If it hadn't made that noise and I hadn't gone to the, gone to the dealership, I'd have been sitting in that room with my daughter on my lap that the weather plane came through. And, uh, you know, at the time, you're not really thinking about it, you know, especially during that my time of life when I was in the precipitous fall yeah. from uh, me just basically running away from God. Yeah. And... Um, you know, you look back at them, that's one of many times, like you said, the storms that I've weathered and the times that there's no reason I should be here that I'm here. And I thought for a long time that my purpose in life was to play baseball. I was a baseball player. That's all I ever knew. And that was my identity. And I had no idea the path that God had me on. Even, I, you know, I think about the poem Footprints. And I think about that story. You know, and you're you're sitting there. You look back on your life in the toughest times. You 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 see one set of footprints, and I think it's yours. Your it's yours. And then that loving voice says, "No, my precious child. It was those times when I carried you." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's times when I when I was a year old, I bit into an electrical cord, and I just happened to fall the right way, and it unplugged. 
Well, the time I was on a horse, dad's roping horse with a saddle when I was five, and the horse, 1,100-pound animal, completely rolled over on me. By the time I cut my left big toe off, part of my foot, and probably yeah. should have bled to death, it was in ICU for four or five days. Got ran over on a street bike with my wife watching. Didn't have a scratch on me. Yeah. Missed a telephone pole on a motor- motorcycle doing 100 in the ditch. Didn't wreck. Came out of the ditch on the other side and made it. I've been shot twice. There's just so many times I've, you look back and you, you think about it. You know, some people ask me all the time, say, well, would you ever done anything different? And I go, other than the, the hurt I caused people? No. Yeah. If I hadn't gone through the things I've gone through and ended up it culminating with me being as hopeless as I could possibly be and thinking this world would be better off and having an ounce of cocaine in me, that didn't work. Having half dozen bottles of vodka, no, no telling how much beer in me, that not working in a three-day period. And finally come to the realization that if I'm going to do this, i got to do it right and putting the gun to my head and pulling the trigger and the gun not going off. Yeah. And... um yeah, there's a lot of storms, I think, that, that obviously you're sharing. I think that one of the things that we've always talked about here is the amount of times several guests have been on. I've been through some crazy ones. You obviously have been through really crazy ones. But the amount of times that we go through life and we see that we're about to be taken out and then you don't. And I think at the time, you're thinking, man, I got lucky or dodged a bullet on that one. Or, man, thankfully I was here. And there are times you're like, wow, maybe, you know, I should have, if I didn't get stopped at this one light that I'm mad about, because you never know what can happen. We always say those things. But when it really happens and you really, really dodge death, something in you eventually says, man, I'm, I got to be here for more than baseball. I got to be here for more than just existing every day. I'm kept alive for a reason. And obviously, you were kept alive. I, I, I think that God sees journeys and he says, I'm going to keep you alive because I think that. And for whatever reason, God gives other people more chances than, than, than he gives others. And, and I think he's given you a lot of chances. But I, I think about these stories. And I think about these storms. And I think about all the way, how you were built as a competitor. When I saw you on the mound, it was just like there's chaos all the time because those are the situations you were brought into. You focused through them and you attacked them and you charged them. And I think that that's just, it's almost like we function in anxiety. We function in chaos certain people are built really, really well for it. You're built very well for chaotic situations. You get very calm in those situations. You get very focused, hyper-focused. But at some point, I mean, you had to get to that. At some point, you got to think, this is not me. This is something else. And a lot of times we run from a lot of things. And even though you were built to charge storms, you were also running from them too. You were running from certain storms. And you and I had conversations when we played. I remember thinking you were kind of running towards the end of your career, not, not fully, you know, where you wanted to be yet at the end. But I remember talking to you and I was like, man, you're a different person outside of your uniform than you are inside your uniform. And you knew that. You had to go to another place in the uniform. I remember you'd sit in weight rooms and you'd journal, but you'd journal your thoughts. But then you, you went in, you turned over. You know, I can still remember, I, I tell stories all the time, I still can hear the songs, it would be blasting, and it was just disturbed. You'd always, ugh, ugh, ugh. And it'd be that song you would play, but it would pull you into that spot where it would lock you into baseball because you had to go somewhere else. However, it was really hard, and it's hard for all of us to actually get out of that at some point in time. We can be certain ways with our families, but it's so hard, and we're trying to numb out we're trying to figure out who we are. We're numbing out from all these situations. 
But baseball in your era, more in your era, uh, was a little different than mine. You, you know, I kind of joined the end of your of your era of baseball when I got in, but it was such a hard era to play in because there was a lot of other scenarios, and you've talked about. It. I mean, the performance enhancing drugs, the steroids, the anabolics, the whatever HGH, the amphetamines, the greenies were rampant in your era and beginning of mine. I remember one of our teammates was taken to the hospital because he was on so many greenies to function; his brain just shut down, and 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 it was just one of those things where man. You had to deal with it. And I know, and we have the 2006 scenario in Arizona. FBI kicks down your door. You're having HGH delivered. But since you lived it, and I, I, I never did the, the, the enhancement stuff, but what was it in your era? Why, why did we feel as baseball players that we had to do that? Was it to keep up? Was it because it was just not tested for? Like, where was the mentality of, of you? Why did you want to do that to keep going? Well, the... You know, so I think I really got into that probably when I was mid-20s, somewhere in that neighborhood, something like that. And a lot of it, to be honest with you, had to do with the way your body felt, how I dealt with pain. And, you know, I, I figured out that when I did take DECA or HGH, I could stay in the weight room longer. I could stay on the bike longer. I recovered faster. I felt better. And I, I knew at a real young age, at a, as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid, that I was a number, that I was a, I was a piece of meat, that personally, to them, I didn't count and I didn't matter. And I knew my only, the only value that I had to them was me going out performing. Hmm. So I was going to do everything I could, whether it be working out, if it was taking a supplement, if it, if it was taking a steroid, if it was taking HGH, if it was going to improve my performance. I was going to do everything I could because I knew I had a short window. I didn't, I didn't, yeah. to be honest with you, I didn't expect to play when I was 39. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like I was, I was lucky to, to get drafted. And when I got the big leagues, all right, I, I know this ain't going to be long, so I'm going to do whatever I can to be as good as I can to stay as long as I can. And um, I think a lot of it was a, a survival instinct, being able to, to go out there and to perform as good as I could possibly for, perform, regardless of the consequences. Because I, to be honest, I didn't I didn't expect to live that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, no, that's, I, I, that's a fair statement. Yeah, I, 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 I still think I'm living on borrowed time. Yeah, to be honest with you. Yeah, you know, because because who could who could have ever wrote a story that a poor kid from East Texas that didn't pitch his last two years in high school would ever have ever have an opportunity to to pitch in the big leagues? Yeah, and then I was of the mindset, whatever I had to do to to stay there, I was going to do to stay there. Yeah, yeah. and um, it wasn't tested for you know and and you know people of two minds you you got the purists and you got whoever but if we're being honest with ourselves mark mcguire and sammy sosa saved baseball period yeah no they hit homers they got people back involved they got people excited baseball had gone through three labor stoppages yeah the strike in 94 which i was a part of the lockout in 1990 which i was a part of and um you're, you're gonna have people that Guys like Roger Clemens, different people that there's no reason they shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. But we're we're entertainers. Yeah, we're show pieces. We're put out there to entertain. Yeah, and you know you you can you can throw rocks at them, do whatever. Doesn't bother me none. That's that's your business. Yeah, but 
seriously, I have no regrets for any of that. The way it ended, yeah, sure. I got I got regrets about the way it ended, what I put my family through, and the fact that they wanted me to wear a wire and get dirt on my teammates, and which I told them to stick it in their ass. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of us would have said that. Yeah. I hope all of us would have said yeah, that. Well, yeah. actually, there were some that probably didn't. Yeah. Because I, I promise you, I'm not the only guy that, that was asked that question. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just I just walked away. Yeah. And that just that just added to the fall from, you know, and I, I think um, John hit on the subject last night that that everything he talked about was the exact life that I live. You know, when I when I was baptized, became a Christian in 1999, I was on fire for God, and I thought I had to do something for my salvation. Now, yeah, I had that warm fuzzy feeling. I was on fire, and I was I was running that road to pleasing God. Yeah, you know, okay, I'm I'm doing this, I'm good. I'm doing this, I'm good. I'm doing this, I'm good. You know, and then I think the worst thing that could have happened was probably one of the greatest things that happened was, was winning the World Series because then it became all about me. Yeah. Look what I did. Oh, I'm, I'm a world champ. You know, now the notoriety comes with it, all the buzz, the fanfare that comes with it, and you, then we repeat it in 2000. Now all of a sudden, it's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then I got a little bit of setback. I got released. But I signed with Kansas City and two months into the season signed a $6 million deal. Yeah. And now it's really... It's really, it's really about me. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know who, how you feel about baseball. Don't get me wrong; it was the most incredible journey, a great ride. I absolutely loved every second of it. But it was by far the most selfish thing I've ever done in my life. Oh, well, you can't not be. Everything's catered to you, given to you, luggage delivered to your room, taken to the airplane. You fly out whenever you want. You get whatever you want. You go into the clubhouse and you say, "Hey, go get me this." They go get it for you. It breeds selfishness. Yep. Is what it does. To that point, even in the winter. Sure, I was home. but yeah, I we had to work out. You got to throw. I got to get ready for the season. It's all about me. Family's on my time. Exactly. Everything. We, if we went on vacation, had to have a gym. Yeah. And I would, for the first couple of months in the off season, I'd, I'd do two-a-days. So there was, all day long, I was I was either working out, and I wouldn't spend time with the kids. Yeah. I'd come home. I'd be tired. I'd hang out with them a little bit, and then I'd go to sleep, do it all over again. It, it was like I was working all year long. Yeah. You know, I was an absentee dad, absentee husband. They were just along for the ride. Yeah. And um, in 2004, when I was traded from Kansas City, went to Baltimore. You know, that's, that's when things started really going downhill. Well, I, I was starting to try to numb things. I got into drugs, got into cocaine. And then baseball ended like it did. Then I really just wanted to disappear. I made everybody think that it didn't bother me. There's no big deal. And I, and I'm this tough guy. I can handle anything. I had no big deal. I'm, I'm done. I'm whatever. Yeah. And the whole time, I'm just tore up inside. And for nine years, I lived a lie. I was in two psych wards, three rehab facilities. Nothing worked. Yeah. You know, and uh, the last one I got out after the, after the 2015 incident, the thing that really changed everything, I wanted to take my life. I thought they'd be better off without me. And then when I got out of the rehab, I still thought that they'd be better off without me. They'd have, they'd have a better life. And I was getting ready to move out. My wife came to me, and the grace that she showed me in that moment, she said, Jason, I love you. God loves you. I forgive you. God forgives you. She says, now you got to love yourself and forgive yourself. Mm. But let's do this. Mm-hmm. And just, just the grace that she showed me opened me up to the, the grace that God has for me and showed me the love that he has for me. And like I said, I thought my purpose for a long time was baseball. And I was lost afterwards. When I say lost, I was lost. If anybody wants to know what hell looks like, I can describe it to you. I can tell you what it looks like. 
It's a feeling where you feel like you're not of this world. You don't belong here. Everyone else would be better off without you. The only way I could describe it, if I was in a room full of loved ones and friends, I felt the loneliest I think I've ever felt because I couldn't love them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, basically what you described is hell is shame. It's and, and John Lynch, you know, who did speeches last night, has said it perfect. Shame is all about not that you did something wrong. It's that there's something wrong with you. And when we live in that, there's something wrong with me. My family is better off without me. I don't understand my purpose. My friends would be better off without me. My relationships is where I don't belong here. That's shame in its fullest moment, which to me is hell. And when we, when we look at scripture, when you look at how Jesus, where he said, I came to free you from shame because he's freeing you from hell. That's what he's doing. And I think that that is though, Jason, I think you'd probably agree. There's not a lot of baseball players. I don't care if you made $200 million that really know who they are when they leave the game. You think some of us left the game like you did kind of maybe got pushed out or you had to kind of disappear. Some guys are like pissed off at the game just want to walk away. Some guys, I, I walked off on my own terms, but give it a couple months and you're like, who the hell am I? Like, yep. I don't even know who I am. I don't have a routine anymore. I'm looking at little kids and I'm like, all right, I'm at home, not just for three months or two months. I'm at home now for 12 months. I got to be a dad. I got to be a influence. And you got to figure the home was run a certain way. You got to figure out how to function and, and deal with your own shame in the sense of now it's not a shame of like not adding up as an athlete we dealt with that every single day and we added up and we didn't add up we had successes highs lows world championships we had all those things but now you're dealing with the shame of like i just don't actually know who i am outside of baseball and i'm ashamed of that because the worst thing that i oh you're the baseball player was the baseball player <laughs> i'm not the baseball player what do you do now the worst thing for me as a man is to be able to say, I don't know. That's a shameful thing for men to say. Uh, and so to go through it and to deal with it. And I think for you, like you said, it was, I did whatever I had to do, which is what a lot of guys did. And that's what I, one thing when a, when a reporter came up to me in Kansas City uh, is right before I got traded actually to Colorado and said, you hear what happened to Jason in Arizona? I said, yeah, I saw it. It's on the news. You just got to look at the TV. It's all over. Hey, what do you got to say about that? I'm like, what do you want me to say about it? He's like, well, what do you have to say for Jason for what he did? I'm like, I'm going to tell you he's my friend. And he was one of my best teammates I've ever had. And I'm praying for him. I love him. And I'm, I don't know what you're trying to get me to. <laughs> you almost, you want to look at report. I don't know what you're trying to get me to say here. And he said, well, and I stopped him. I said, I know you're trying to get me to say something negative, but I'm not going to do it because I love the man. Made a mistake. I don't tell you. And I walked off because in my thought, it was like, for one, you want to say, did you see what Jason did? Well, as a baseball player, I can't do that. But I can also give you a name, about 100 different guys that I personally know did it. And they all did it, too. So you can't pinpoint one guy. And so for me, it was, I always looked at that era as everybody did what they had to do to compete at a level that they were expected to compete at. Bud Selig, Commissioner of Baseball, Witch Hunt, all these different things, own the Milwaukee Brewers when I can probably guarantee you I can name four of those guys that were doing it when he was the owner. So, like, you see all these things, and you're like, man, everybody knew what everybody was doing. And it was a competitive environment. Was it right? 
I don't know if it was right. I wouldn't say it was necessarily wrong based on the air and what we played, but I would say that people had to do what they felt like they had to do because of how they looked at the game, how they looked at who they were, how they looked at the identity of what they were supposed to become and how the game dictated who we were. And we had to fight that storm every day. It was not Jason Grimsley, a two-time World Series champion. It was Jason Grimsley, we just paid you this much money. We expect you to live like this and be like this and do this and commit and perform at this level, which we're human beings. That's what people don't understand. It's hard to add up to those expectations. And one of the things I see, I see a lot of guys, like I said, these guys, 200 million, 180 million. I see a lot of these guys that have left the game and they're alcoholics, they're they're trying to numb out and they got all the money in the world. It isn't because they don't have money. It's not because they're not, they don't, they can't take care of their families. They don't know who they are. And I think that that's what I saw in you is your battle with that. And so when I got that call in spring training, you left me a voicemail. I was actually rehabbing. I was rehabbing a shoulder, a, a scap situation I was having. And so I missed the call and then I heard the voicemail and I just remember the terror of what I was hearing. And I, I remember I got to Dana and she said, we got to him and I was so thankful, but my mind, Jason, to be honest with you, my mind was like, this guy taught me everything about how to approach the game. One of the sayings that stuck with me my whole career is sometimes you get the bear. Sometimes the bear gets you like processing all of that. And then thinking what happened to that guy? that he said, sometimes you get the bear, sometimes the bear gets you because there's no way he's going to let the bear of life get to him where he's going to take it. So I was then going, where did he go? How deep and dark did he run? And the pain that I was feeling was like, this game did a lot of good things for us. I enjoyed every minute of the ride as well. However, this game messes you up, period. It messes you up. And, and it messes you up mentally, messes you up physically, the way our bodies are break down, the way we got to, we don't act the same when we're retired. We just, we focus and we compete in all this chaos and we're so comfortable with anxiety that when you leave the game and you don't have the, you don't want to be a part of the anxiety anymore, we don't know how to function. Give me that thought of like, I know that you were to the point where like, maybe I should just not be here on earth anymore, but it takes a lot knowing how you were built, all the stuff you went through, how you were just, I do not give up. I'll challenge you with a heater. I'll tell you it's coming, and I think I can beat you. So that guy was not the guy that was having that same, the thought process when you put the gun under your chin. So what was that? Probably a lot, a lot of it has to do with everything that you've done before your career, during your career. When you're done, you start reflecting you know, you're looking back on it. Don't get me wrong. You remember the great times, but those are fleeting. And um, I think a, a lot of it has to do with what you, what you touched on earlier. Without that game, without the structure, without the daily routine, without the workout, without the clubhouse, without the camaraderie, I honestly didn't have any idea what to do. I tried to bury myself in, in certain things and different different businesses, different things. You know, you can only play so much golf. You can only go hunting so many <laughs> yeah. times. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I know that sounds like Crimea River. That's a great life. But at the end of the day, I think a man without purpose is not a man. That's and right. when you realize 
your athletic career is done, or any career for that matter, is done, or you get fired, whatever happens, you lose your sense of purpose. And if your sense of purpose is not your relationship with Jesus, what kind of purpose do you have other than mm. trying to step on somebody, other trying than trying to get ahead, mm. other than, you know, material pleasures in this world? Where's the richness in that? Where's the satisfaction in that? It's if not it, because if, it never it never it, gives it, in. You, you know, always want more. If you take an honest look, you know there's there's always a bigger house. There's always more in your bank account. There's always a nicer car. There's always another wife. There's always another relationship. You know, and, and once you once you start down that road, it becomes an acquisition mode, a conquer mode. Mm-hmm. And when you've conquered everything, what do you have left? You have an empty, hollow individual that has burned every relationship in his life, that doesn't know how to love, doesn't know what friendship is, and doesn't have a relationship with our creator. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that point and there's no meaning left, there's no reason left to be here. And I think that's where a, a, a ton of people end up. Mm not only in athletics, but just in the business world or people that are just struggling on a day-to-day basis and give up. Mm. What's my purpose? Why am, I, why am I here? I mentioned this to John last night. I said, I don't care whether you believe in God or not. He's going to use you. Yeah, right. One way or the other. Right. And I never understood the love that he had for me mm. or, the, or the, the purpose that he had for me. You know, my purpose might change in me, mm-hmm. but my purpose with him will never change. Hmm. Yeah, and, no, that's and, good. And the, the comfort in that and the confidence in that and the the freedom that, that comes with that is, uh, when I, t- Jeremy, when I tell you it's unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. Hmm. It is the most rewarding freest loving thing that I could have, I could have ever possibly encountered or ever will encounter. Hmm. Now I love my wife. I love my, I love my kids. I love my friends. I love you, but that could go away. The, my love for you is never right. leave, but you know, we're not guaranteed the next breath. That's right. That being said, I know there's one love that, uh, you know, <laughs> neither height nor depth, heaven or hell, nothing can separate me. Mm. from the love of God. Now, there's, there could be something that will separate me from the, the love that I have for my, my wife or my kids when I leave. They'll be separated from my love. I'll be separated from their love. Mm-hmm. But just in a physical sense. Mm-hmm. In a physical sense and in, in, our, in our spiritual sense, that love that God has for us, I'll never be separated from it now. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not going to happen. I don't care what happens to me on this earth. I don't think I've ever been afraid of dying, even when I wasn't a Christian or even when I was a fallen Christian. Yeah. I've never been afraid of death. To be honest with you, I think I was afraid of life. Mm. I was afraid of living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I think that that's probably, I've never had a suicidal thought really in my life. I think that 
that statement is a big insight for me on man people that want to do that they're they're not actually afraid of dying i could not do i just couldn't man it would i would have to go to a place where i no longer was afraid of dying but i think that is the best insight one of the best insights i've heard on the tendency to want to end it all is i'm not afraid of dying i'm afraid of actually living and continuing to go through all of this I, that's what i'm afraid of and shame and that's what shame does because shame Shame is a storm that a lot of people cannot take on. And it's to a point where Jesus said, I have to actually free you from it because you're not going to be able to take it on. Like that, that is the thing that he said, I have to release you of this ability to try to add up because the shame's too much and you will quantum quit living and you'd rather just die. And I mean, look at Judas, the guy walked with Jesus all the time. And he said, I'm afraid to even keep living after what I've just done. I'm just going to end it. I am. I, I worry about a lot of time for a lot of people of just wanting to quit. Like, I don't want to run from a storm. I don't want to run into a storm. I just don't want to be a part of a storm that are inevitable. I'm just going to end it. And, but you understood that the gun didn't, it, nothing, it, I, I mean, you pulled it, right? It just didn't go off, basically. Yeah, there was a, I guess there's a safety feature on the Kimber. You got, there's a back pressure plate that you got to have pulled. And I guess, I think that was it. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And I think that going through that, but you did it. It didn't work. But now there's still a storm to, char to charge because I don't, you have to now run that gauntlet now. Now your wife is with you. Your kids are with you. They know what you've done. Now I have to look at a whole different way of thinking in life. And what do I got to do now? What was the process going through? So you give me your, your last five, six years now, seven years of just walking this out. I knew in that moment, I was still pissed at God. I said, you won't let me live. You won't let me die. What do you want? <laughs> and, he, and the thought that came to me is, I don't want anything. I just want to love on you. And I want to show you love. And I want you to see that love, feel that love. And I want you to understand that there's nothing you can do to fix a situation. Hmm. There's nothing you can do to better a situation. Just come along beside me. We're going to walk this walk together. And I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to walk you through this. Hmm. You ain't going to like it. You ain't going to like it at all. It's going to be tough. Hmm. They're not going to be those warm fuzzies you had the first time. Yeah. This is going to be a slow, precipitous walk that we're going to take. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. That shame that you felt, that shame that you're feeling, it's still going to be there. But I got it. Hmm. Come on. Do you look at your wife and kids differently now than you did before that? Yes, but I believe that the reason my, my wife and my kids show me the grace they show me, number one, my wife's just an incredible, incredible lady, strong Christian. My kids, even when I was going through this period, when I was living different lives, I was doing cocaine on a daily basis, drinking on a daily basis. Nobody could tell. Yeah. I was, I was a chameleon. I was great at hiding things. But even in those situations, I would still pray with my kids every night. Hmm. And I wanted to because I didn't want them to ever feel like I felt. And I was going to do whatever I could do. And even though I felt like the biggest hypocrite on the planet, I made myself every night go pray with my kids. Hmm. 
And, you know, one of the most incredible things I've ever read is actually in my book when um, Jason Clark, the guy that helped me with the book, interviewed my wife and my kids, and they told their stories, Mm -hmm. what they were feeling. Hmm. And one thing my wife, wife said, she said, even through those times when Jason was unfaithful, when he was fighting addiction, when he was fighting alcoholism, when he was battling all these demons, I never for a second doubted that he didn't love me. Mm. And I still, the hardest thing, the hardest thing I ever did was say that, okay, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be around you guys because I think I'm a cancer. I'm a something negative in your life. Yeah. And when I read what they had to, to write, I, I realized that was, I was still believing the lie that the devil was telling me. Mm. Mm. And, um, you know, that's, that grace, you know, and my relationship with my wife now is better than it's ever been. My relationship with my kids is, is incredible. My daughter calls me her hero, mm. which is undeserving. Yeah, but awesome to hear. Yeah, <laughs> but it's awesome to hear. But when I was able to read what each of them wrote and what they said, and the changes that, that they've seen in me, and and how proud they are that I'm their dad, even the stuff they go through, they they know everything. There's there's nothing hidden. Yeah. It, it, yeah. All all the dirt's been aired out. All the laundry's been mm-hmm. washed out and thrown on the line to hang out to dry. There's nothing that isn't there. Mm. And it just shows you the power of grace and the power of love, what it can conquer. And there, the love of Jesus, there's nothing that that can't cover. Mm. I don't care what it is. What's your purpose now, do you think? Purpose at this point in time? I'm here talking with you. The reason I wrote the book, if I can tell my story and help one person that's going through a similar situation or somebody's getting ready to go through a similar situation or somebody that's been through a similar situation, if I can bring validity to their life and and give them a glimpse of hope and show them what Jesus was able to do through me, that there's no reason that Jesus can't do the same thing through their lives. Mm. That's what I'm doing. I have no idea what purpose is going to be tomorrow. I don't know. And I think, you know, another thing John said last night that stuck with me was destiny. I don't know what my destiny is. I, I know who I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be my guide. Yeah. But that, I don't know if that destiny is going to change or if it's going, it's going to remain the same or what it's going to be. Mm. I don't care. I just know I'm along for the ride and wherever he points me, wherever he leads me, that's where I'm going to go. Mm. Mm. When you wrote this book and, and, and you're selling it, what, it, what is the purpose of the book? Well, like I said, the purpose is to help that one person. But um, I do know that all the proceeds that we make, either from a book or if, if something happens and somebody picks it up and we end up doing a movie, every dime that, that I'm going to make from the book or any anything that else comes from it is going straight to Emerging Grace. Which is? Uh, it's an organization in Montgomery, Texas, close to where I live. Uh, we're building a home for young adoles- adolescent girls that have been sex trafficked. It'll be a, a long-term care facility to get them the help they need, the education they need, the healing they need with God at its base yeah. to um, help them through this. I think that there's something like over 16,000 animal shelters in the U.S. There's less than 1,000 beds for these young yeah, girls. That's right. Yep. And uh, I, I, it's not that I want to. I, got, I, I have to do something to be able to, to help facilitate that, mm-hmm. to bring healing and bring Jesus to others. I don't know how that's going to look or what that's going to look like moving forward, but that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, sex trafficking is a big deal. I've been a part of that for a very, very long time. I think trying to rescue these girls and these boys uh, as well. But uh, talk about shame. 
that they've been put through and they did not bring upon themselves. Uh, so to be able to be contributing to something like that, man, Jason, I'm proud of you. I'm so thankful for your story. I'm thankful that you went through what you went through. And you probably, people would say, I've had similar thoughts about my life. Been through a lot of different storms. Wouldn't wish it on some of my worst enemies. However, I actually, glad I went through it. I'm sure you are too, because I think that it shapes us. This is where we can understand where it says, take joy in your trials and tribulations. Nobody wants them, but you take joy in them because it's the persevering of our faith. This, this is what builds us. This is what shapes us. This is what's, when we feel God at his closest level, is not when we're riding a wave. It's not when we're on our high. It's not when we're in world championships. It's not when it's all about me. When we feel God, it's in some of our storms that we have to lean because that's the time where our hearts are most open, needing help. We're crying out for help. And man, he's always there. And like you said, it's never going to go anywhere. Height, depth, nothing separates us from the love of God. And when we see it in the moments of, of storms, that's when we probably, for me anyhow, I grow in my faith during those times. So I appreciate it, man. I appreciate coming on. I appreciate the story. So thankful for your book, Cross Stitched. It's out now. Uh, and I'm really, really thankful that uh, we have the opportunity to be able to read your story. I'm sure it's going to impact a lot of people. So thanks for coming on, Jason. I uh, thanks it. for having me, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. I love you. Love you, you know too, that. man. Yeah, absolutely. Love you too. <laughs> love your family Have since I've known you. So thank you so much, man. I, I appreciate you. And uh, I appreciate your wife. And I appreciate your kids, man, because they're, they're a good example of grace at its finest. So it's pretty awesome. Thanks, so, buddy. Awesome. God bless you. You've been dialed into the Built for the Storm podcast with Jeremy Affel. And he strikes out. That's four straight for Affel. Can't do it any better than Jeremy Affel. If you like what you heard, please like, rate, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify today. Jeremy Affel here for Free Rome Brewing Company. Do you enjoy craft beer? I do. So I started Free Rome Brewing Company. Our logo, environment, and community all reflect the mighty buffalo, a creature built for the storm. It symbolizes inner strength, perseverance, and a love of freedom. Here at Free Rome Brewing Company, we are determined to strengthen our community through the love of craft beer. Our premium quality lagers and ales reflect the diverse experiences and tastes of our community. In a boundless world of potential beer styles, we cherish the freedom to roam. So if you're in the Bernie area, whether local or passing through, join us on Main Street and enjoy your freedom. Jeremy Affel here for the Hotel Via. I know you've heard it's at the intersection of sports, technology, and entertainment. But for me, it's my home away from home when I visit San Francisco. I can give you 50 great reasons why I chose Hotel Via, but it's easier for me to say it provides all the comforts of home, family owned and operated, and of course, it's across from the beautiful Oracle Park. So when you're coming to San Francisco for business, pleasure, vacation, or just coming to a sporting event, check in to the Hotel Via.